good morning. I don't know if this uh, is something any of you think about, but I was just thinking uh, this morning that the last time I stood here, I was standing here as a normal, ordinary member of this church doing opening words, and the time before that that I stood in front was, was the last time I preached as your, as your pastor, and today I'm standing here as your district superintendent, so, so a lot of uh, changes in my mindset. I don't know if it makes any difference to you, but it does to me, and it's interesting because as your district superintendent, it is part of my responsibility to bring a district report and uh, and something of a Evangelical Free Church of Canada report. And because I know you so well, that feels a little weird and awkward. So I thought instead of going into the formalized parts of that, I'd just kind of give you a, a little insight into my my life now in the last two months. This is where I spend most of my time during the weeks, and on the weekends uh, I travel uh, to different churches. Um, you know, before starting this this new role, and, and I believe it's more of a calling than a job, uh, but, but the phrase that kind of gets thrown around for district superintendents is that a district superintendent is a pastor to the pastors. And that is indeed a large part of the role. In fact, uh, three times every month I travel to the north, to the peace country. I'm leaving tomorrow morning to go up to uh, Byzantine to meet with the pastors from the north area. And then I, I met last week with the pastors uh, in the south area from La, in Lacombe and then uh, the, the week after um, in, in Edmonton with the central pastors. And, and, and so that's part of my job. Uh, I, I've been, you know, you never realize till you organize conferences that if, I, if we want to have a guest speaker at the next uh, Alberta Parkland District Conference, I've got to get on that right now in terms of booking and finding someone to, to speak for that. So I've been working on that. And uh, there's just a lot of stuff behind the scenes that, um, that you don't really realize on like a song. For example, your district superintendent has to do quite a few things in interaction between the church organization, the charitable organization, and the government. If you want to have a pastor who is qualified and, and registered to, for example, do funerals and weddings. And so that's part of my job. I have to interact with each of the churches and pastors to make all, sure all of those uh, those things are in order. Um, later this, in a, in a couple of weeks, uh, I'm going up to high level. Uh, our farthest away from us church, uh, for five days, to, they've asked me to come and help with uh, revisioning, re, refocusing their church for ministry into the future. So that's what I'll be doing there. Um, I've met with several search committees, including the one here from this church, to help uh, the process of transitioning to a new pastor. Um, I've got calls on from pastors and youth leaders on issues, everything from moral failures in the church to, to gender issues in youth groups. Um, and, um, and, of course, there's the positive things uh, Working, I've been talking with the pastor in Erskine. They've started a program they're calling Nexus, where they're they're we we Michael just mentioned, and I'm going to be talking about outreach, and this is a a program where they uh, they they've been having uh, each time they they launch a new Nexus group, uh, they've been having people come to know the Lord fresh and new uh, in their church, and so that's very exciting. Maybe in the future you can bring that program here to help as as. Uh, I know they're planning from that church to expand it out as a, as a resource 
uh, throughout the district. So working with them with that um, and with the Wembley Church plant going up there, uh, as I said, tomorrow to the peace country and meet with them. They're at the stage of starting to write their constitution as a new church, their first ever uh, incorporation as a charity. So that's exciting. And um, and just just generally speaking, uh, the you know every every church that I've encountered for the most part has has weathered the last two years pretty similar to us. Uh, a little bit of loss on different sides, unsure what's coming in the future, uh, but mostly sticking together despite uh, differences throughout uh, this last bit of time. And then, of course, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, uh, as, you, as you pray for the world situation in Ukraine, uh, remember our evangelical free church leaders at the home office in Langley. Just over the last two years, we've carefully and, and uh, uh, on, on the national board, which, which I'm a member of, put together exactly a plan for this, an emergency uh, plan. It's a requirement now if in Canada, if you're a charity that has people overseas, that you have an emergency response plan. And we discussed at length on paper what you do if a war breaks out where we have missionaries. We never dreamed we'd be actually putting that into action. But it is, and it costs money. We need to keep our, our people and our missionaries safe that we support in Ukraine, and there's a number of them. In fact, I heard in the prayer card, and I urge you to go to the Free Church homepage, these things cost money uh, to, to extract people and provide safety for our missionaries. Uh, but the, when I went to Ukraine the first time, I had a translator, and he'd been hired by the Bible college uh, to translate for the teachers, and he was hired because he's a good translator. He wasn't a Christian. But through, the, through translating the Bible co- college classes from the teachers... He became a Christian, and then later on he became a pastor, and he's been pastoring a church in Dnepro uh, for, for many years now, and uh, he and his family walked for three days and nights to get to Poland, uh, just to, to get out of harm's way. And so, but he's left the congregation behind, um, and, and it's just very, very difficult. So pray, pray for our free church leaders uh, that, that they will... Um, be wise and be able to follow through on the plans that have been made for such times. I wanted to actually uh, pick up on Luke chapter 10 and verses uh, 1 to 12 specifically. I hope you've been reading along in Luke because this picking out just these few verses to, to focus on Uh, will be helpful if you have the context of the surrounding chapters and verses, but I'm not going to uh, mention too much about that. And um, I just, I'll just mention that, you know, the last time I preached here, I, I focused on proclaim. And I think I might have left you with a little bit of a guilt trip and myself as well, because I, I fit in, in terms of trying to identify uh, where our church is weak uh, going forward. And uh, I would have never done that, because I don't think guilt is the proper and correct motivation for Christian living. Uh, guilt is for people who have not been saved. Uh, but we have the assurance that our sins are forgiven and that we don't live in guilt. 
Um, but I knew that I'd be here back this Sunday to, to wrap that up and, and tie that together. So, so that's why I did that. But if you just remember, I'll just give a very quick review. We looked at Abraham's uh, promise in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And we saw how the promise that God gave to Abraham was a promise for Abraham, yes. For his family, yes. But also for all nations. It was outward focused. The the purpose of the promise was for all nations. And then we looked at the gospel promise in, in Luke chapter 24. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you that, that what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And here again we see that the gospel promise is a, is a promise to, to me as an individual, to you as an individual, and our families, but then it's also for all the nations. It's outward focused. And in our own church uh, vision statement, United in Jesus Christ, as we grow up in and out, we have an outward focus here as well. Um, I suggested in my, my last message here as your pastor that our church is is getting pretty good at up and in. Our relationship with God and how to do that, our relationship with one another and how to encourage and build one another up, but perhaps the out part of that is is our greatest weakness. So I thought, as as, uh, Michael asked me to preach from these chapters in Luke, that I I would open our Bibles to Luke chapter 10 and look at Jesus' instructions there. Jesus doesn't leave us without, I think, clear and simple instructions on how to reach out. So it begins here in verse 1. The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into the fields. Now go and remember that I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor a pair of sandals. And don't stop to greet anyone on the road. I just want to notice um, two things from these first uh, four verses. The first is that Jesus sends his disciples not to save people, but to prepare the way for him to come. And I think that's an appropriate mindset for us to have as we seek to reach out. It's not us. It's not our church. It's not our programs that saves people. It's Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. So we go to prepare the way so God can work in their lives. That, that's, that's our part of the process. That's his disciples' pro, part of the process here. And the other thing um, that I'll mention here is that, that these, these people going out, they're novices. They've never done this before. 
In fact, no one in the world has ever done this before. Jesus is sending them out to prepare the way for him to come and bring the gospel, the good news, to people. And they felt just as you do, as lambs among wolves. They were nervous. It's scary. It's going to cause us a little consternation as it did them. And so, so we're, not, we're not in a different situation than Jesus' disciples in this, in this case. Um, but it's clear here that what he's about to do, what he's setting up with these first uh, words, what Luke is setting up here with these first four verses, is now we're ready to hear what exactly does Jesus instruct his disciples, including us, I believe, in terms of how to go about this task of preparing the way so that he can meet people. And so here's the instructions if we just go to uh, the next verse, in verse 5. Whenever you enter someone's house, first say, May God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, and the, ble- the blessing will stand. If they are not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one ple- place. Eat and drink what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. If you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you. Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you now. I don't know, have you you ever said those words? May God's peace be on this house? Seems a little awkward to us, right? Um, I don't think... Jesus means here to us that we say exactly those words, but I think it's, it's quite easy to understand the sentiment or what's being communicated there in terms of our approach when we, when we go out to prepare the way for Jesus. And so, um, first of all, of course, we do have to go. We have to go somewhere where people are. In this case, they were going village to village that Jesus was going to visit. In our case, it's, it's less likely. And in this case, they're going to homes. And to, uh, to translate that culturally, I would say uh, homes is where people are. I mean, in, in those days, most people worked at home. Most people played at home. Most people had their social uh, network of family and friends around their home. And so if you wanted to be where people were, you had to go to their, ho- to their home. Now, that's a little bit different in our context. You might go to Tim Hortons to be where people are. Or you might go to the, to the stands at the hockey rink to be where people are. You might go different places. Uh, you might go to their homes. Uh, but but the, the point here is go where the people are and greet them or, or interact with them in such a way that they know you bring God's presence with you. So how, how do you do that? I think the, the way you do that, the words you might speak, would be different for each and every one of you. But, but just think about that for a minute. In the context where you, where you interact with people who don't know Jesus, how could you bring the knowledge of his presence that is in your life, because you're a kingdom person, into that place? What words would you say? How, how would that happen? I can, I can share a little bit about how it sometimes happens for me, and I, I will confess it doesn't happen often enough. Uh, this is a weakness uh, for, for my life as it is for many of you. 
But here's one thing that, that I've found is quite effective. If I simply say to someone, you know, maybe they've been sharing something, I've been getting to know them, and they share something that they're concerned about, I can ask, would it be okay if I pray about that? And I'll get a response. And it usually falls into one of three categories. Uh, some people are quite ready, even though they don't believe. And they'll say something like, well, I don't even believe in God. But if you want to pray, sure, let's pray. And you can pray right then and there with them. Other people are, are um, they say, yes, I'd like it if you pray. But they don't want you to pray right there in their presence. Go home and pray, but don't pray around me. But sure, pray for it. And then sometimes there's people that say that. They don't even want me to pray when, 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 they're, when they're not around. They say, no, I don't believe in that. Don't pray for this. That would be, well, I'll still pray for them at home on my own time. But, but that's, that's, a, that's the different kind of responses. And, and another thing that works for me is, is I, I know a lot of Bible stories. And many times in a, just a normal everyday conversation, it will remind me of a Bible story. And that's a way I can bring God into the conversation and say, you know, that reminds me of this story. And tell them the story. And then you find out what kind of response you get. And that's for me. I'm not saying those, those ways would work for you. But that's, I believe, what, what is being said here. May God's peace be on this house. And then it's clear from Jesus' instructions here that he's looking at, okay, what is the response going to be? Is the person going to accept that peace or that presence of God or that suggestion that God is here with us? Will they receive that as a blessing? Or will that blessing that you offer return to you? They reject it. And and it's interesting because what Jesus is saying here, if the blessing returns to you, that's a way he said it, but I think we understand what that means, right? They, they, They don't want to talk about it. They don't want that in the conversation. Maybe another way you would do it is just when when food is set before you, just say, would you mind if I thank God for this food before we eat it? So, So you'll find out then if they receive that offer as a blessing or if they reject it. And Jesus' instructions here is if they, if that blessing returns to you, move on. Now, I don't think he's saying stop being a friend with that person, but he's saying if your life really is about the kingdom and you're putting God's kingdom first, you're not going to invest hours and hours and weeks of your time in a relationship where that's not welcome. So find people where it's welcome. Maybe they don't accept it. Maybe they don't, don't believe, but they're, but they're comfortable. They're, they're ready to have that in the, in the space, in the context. And then the next thing is very interesting, and I think this is a challenge for most of us. He makes very clear that the next step, if they receive that blessing, is that they will offer hospitality, and you receive what they give. And that's like an invitation. So how does that look? Maybe it looks like, do you want to go fishing? I hate fishing. Well, I don't. I, I don't mind fishing. But maybe that's you. Okay, well, what should your response be? They have offered you hospitality. They're offering something. They're inviting you into their life. Go fishing. Let them say, I don't know how to fish. Would you teach me? I'd love to go with you. And so you go. And um, maybe it's a meal. 
Maybe it's, I don't know, whatever people are doing, they'll, they'll, they'll invite you into their life at that stage. And then you know, if that happens, that you have discovered what is called here, or what I would say is a person of peace. And so you go with it. You spend your time. You spend, it's not a project. Their life or getting them converted isn't a project. But God has shown you a place where his kingdom is moving and is at work. And it's, it, as his disciple, he's given us the task then to prepare the way in that place, in that relationship, in that family for him to save them. And so we go and we receive it. And, and I just want to say that very often this is where we get it wrong. When someone offers hospitality, a common Christian response is, no, I won't receive it. Maybe what they put on the table to drink is something you don't want to drink. Maybe what they put on the loudspeaker in the living room is music you don't want to hear. But they're offering it to you. Come into my life. I'm inviting you with hospitality. And Jesus says, whatever they set before you, receive it. And that's a challenge. And the reason that becomes such a a sticky point is because when we reject their hospitality, they read it as an insult. They read it as, oh, so you're a Christian. You think you're better than me. They read it as judgment. And the Christian church in Alberta, if you ask anyone who doesn't go to church, one of the main responses why they're not interested in church is because the church judges us. The church is judgmental. And I think it's mostly because we refuse to accept their hospitality. We have different standards. And so we insult people unintentionally. I know your hearts are right, but unintentionally we insult people again and again and again. So that's a challenge for us. But I think, um, and, and we have to talk about that. Michael said congregationalism. Like, like there's, there's decisions to be made. There's lines that we don't cross. And we have to figure out what those things are. And, and that's what we need each other for, to, to understand how to, how to work through those situations. But I think what Jesus is saying here is, is not complicated. It's very clear. Go into a relationship, a place where people are, and somehow bring God's presence with you. Offer God's peace. Then see how it's accepted or rejected. If it's rejected, that's fine. Move along. But if it's, if it's accepted and they offer hospitality, come on, I want to keep talking about that, then receive that hospitality. He's not saying here, if they accept your blessing, take them into your house and offer them hospitality. He's saying, if they accept that blessing, go into their context and receive what they give you and bring the kingdom with you into that place. And so that's challenging for us because we're pretty comfortable where we are and pretty uncomfortable where they are. But that's the instructions that Jesus gives us. And then the, third, the, the last thing I'll just mention here is, is verse 9 says, Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. And so when those things happen, expect that God will begin to do things that you can't do. That's when miracles happen. 
That's when people get saved. That's when the kingdom opens up to them. Now we do have to read the, the, the last bit of this. Um, and it goes, it, it, goes like, uh, it goes like this. But if a town refuses to welcome you, go out into the streets and say, We wipe even the dust of your town from our feet to show that you have, have abandoned, we have abandoned you to your fate. And know this, the kingdom of God is near. I assure you, even wicked Sodom will be better off than such a town on Judgment Day. Now, I think it's quite easy to take that the wrong way, but we just have to look to chapter 9, just one chapter before, to see what this means. Because Jesus encountered exactly that situation, and we can see exactly what he did. So it's the story here of a, of a town that, that rejected Jesus and the disciples' response. I don't have it on the screen, the words, but I'll read it to you from Luke chapter 9, verse 52. So this is just before uh, Jesus' instructions here that we're looking at. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to, pre- to prepare for his arrival. So exactly the same situation. But the people of the village didn't welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. So the, the blessing that they brought in preparation for Jesus was returned to those who brought it. They didn't want him in their town. So then it says, When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. So they went on to another village. So that's what Jesus means. We just have to look at his example. That's what he did. He does mean that when that happens, it's okay to tell the people, well, you know, the kingdom of heaven is coming, and when, for those who haven't received Jesus, it's going to come in judgment. So, you know, maybe you want to reconsider your rejection of this. But then don't keep pestering them and bugging them and, and knocking on the door. Go on to someone who is a person of peace. We only have so much time in this life. Uh, people aren't our projects, but we want to spend our time doing kingdom stuff. Now, Maybe, maybe that just seems like uh, you know, this one spot, maybe it was just for Jesus' disciples in that one situation, uh, and I'm over-exaggerating this, this idea of a person of peace. But I want to remind you of a few stories that are in our Bibles that, that, I, think, um, that I think will help us here, if I can get it back up. So let's just, just think about this. In Luke chapter 7, we have the story of the centurion. Now he was a man who, who had a wide number of people around him, uh, and he was clearly uh, friendly and friends with disciples of Jesus. And so he was a Gentile, and so there was social interaction difficulties there, but he had everything from, from his own soldiers and battalion to his servants and slaves and everyone kind of in a situation there. And his daughter became sick, and he sent messengers out to Jesus. And out of all the crowds around, Jesus picked out him as one to, to respond to. And we see that when, when Jesus offered to heal his daughter, he said, I, I don't even need you to come to my house. And so Jesus healed from afar, and we know that then in his household, uh, the kingdom of God became a welcoming place. We don't have a lot of detail there, but I think we see Jesus doing some of the things that he teaches later on in Luke chapter 10, which we've looked at. And so um, we, we have again another story that you're maybe even more familiar with, the Samaritan woman. Now, Jesus didn't go into the town on this occasion. He stayed out of town at the well, 
And when, when the woman came along, he started a conversation with them, with her, and it, was a, it started out a little bit antagonistic, like you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan, and this, she's expecting it's not going to go well. But through the course of the conversation, she does exactly what Jesus predicts in his instructions people would do. She offers him hospitality. All she has is a drink of water, but she gets it for him. And so there's a, there's a, a bit of camaraderie there in terms of the hospitality. And then, um, then he, he, talk, he uses the water as a way to get into the conversation about, about his kingdom. I have water that will never go dry. And she responds to that inquisitively. She doesn't reject that. Oh, what a weird, like, like uh, mystical person you are. I want nothing to do with you. But she, she enters that conversation. She receives that uh, well. And what happens as a result is she goes back into the village and she brings a whole crowd of people to hear the message. Now, I suspect the disciples could have knocked on the doors of each one of those people and they would have been rejected. But this woman was key. She knew all those people in such a way that if she said, come listen to Jesus, they came. So Jesus found the person of peace in that community. He didn't try to talk to everyone. He just talked to one person. But that person was the door to the whole village. And I think that's interesting. That's how he did it. Now we see a similar situation, very different circumstances, with with the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, and uh, and uh, he's he's uh, reading the scriptures in his chariot, and 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 Philip runs along beside and and says, "Would you like to talk about that?" And and it's a very different kind of hospitality. It's not a house; it's a chariot. But he's invited into the chariot. Now I don't know how you would feel about that. Is bouncing around in a place where you can only stand, trying to hold a scroll, is that an ideal place for a Bible study? But the hospitality, so much as it is, jump in my chariot, was offered, and he he accepts it. He receives that hospitality. And then they talk, and we know then that the that he baptized the the, the eunuch and and though the story is not finished in our Bibles, uh, church history tradition tells us that that eunuch went on to Alexandria and was the key starting point for the Church of Jesus Christ there. And it's not, it's not more than, it's not a long time historically wise later when that became the, the, the seat of Christian education and, uh, and strength in the, in the not too distant future from that. We don't know for sure if it was him, but that's what tradition says. Then we have the complicated story of of Peter and, and uh, Cornelius. And again, very much like the centurion, Cornelius was a Gentile, and he was a key person in the community. Uh, from, the, from the servants to the, to the generals, everyone, he was kind of a central, central and centralizing figure, uh, a key person in the social realm of that place. And uh, he was curious, and God sent him a message and then at the same time, God sent Peter a message because God knew that Peter would have difficulty with that step in there that we have difficulty with. When they offer you hospitality, receive it. So God convinced Peter with these visions, take and eat, and eat what's put in front of you. And so then when the servants came to his door and said, will you come to our master's house, Peter went. And when he brought the blessing of Jesus with him, they received it. 
And when they offered him food that was not fit for a Jew, he ate it. And that household became uh, a church of Jesus Christ. A key person, a person uh, of peace as, as it would be. Now, Acts 16 is an interesting story in terms of the ministry of Paul the Apostle. He'd been hitting roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. He wanted to go one place, and the Holy Spirit didn't let him go. And he wanted to go another place, and in a dream, God called him to a different place. And so everything he was trying to do was coming up empty. So he ends up then in Philippi, and Philippi's a Roman colony, which means there's no synagogue. He can't follow his normal way of doing mission and find that person of peace on the fringes of the, of the, of the synagogue. And he's, I suspect, though it doesn't say, discouraged. And he goes down to the river to pray because he's been unsuccessful now on several different attempts at mission. And he goes down to the river to pray and he meets a woman named Lydia. And she says, you can stay in my house. She offers hospitality. And he goes and stays in her house. And she's a key person in the town where he couldn't catch a footing for the gospel. She opened the door. When Lydia said, come to my house, there's a man here you should listen to, they came. When Paul went to the door and said, I have a message message you should listen to, they shut the door. But Lydia was key. When he got into her house and she invited her friends and neighbors, the door was open for the gospel. And uh, of all places to find a person of peace... Paul and Silas found a person of peace in a jailer who had had them beaten and shackled. Now you would think there could be no greater rejection of the gospel than that. We don't know their conversations beforehand. But when the earthquake came and the jail doors were open and Paul said to the jailer, don't kill yourself. God has kept prisoners here he found a way to bring the conversation about God's presence and what God's doing here into the conversation what, did, what was the jailer's next step hospitality he invited Paul and Silas into his house and then he gathered the people he had influence around and said listen to this person He's got a message. If God can keep all those prisoners from escaping when their doors are flung open, then this is a message we should listen to. And they did. And so I think we can see it's fairly consistent in the biblical stories that in fact the way the gospel spreads is exactly the way Jesus' instructions were given in Luke chapter 10. And so... I think this is something that as a church we should focus on. Be bold in prayer. Seek the Lord. Help me find a person of peace. Maybe that's not the best phrase for it. But someone where we can bring the kingdom with us and it's received. Maybe not. Maybe they don't become Christians right away. But, but we're not rejected for just having that, that part of our life front and center in the conversation. And then spend our efforts there. And when they invite us in, go where they go. Receive what they give. Continue the conversations. 
pray. And perhaps God will open a door. I want to give you two examples from real life. A friend of mine, someone you might know, Kevin Corbin, uh, was a banker in Edmonton area, lived in Sherwood Park, and his wife and him felt called to plant a church. They were not pastors. They were, not, uh, they were self-educated in theology and, and biblical knowledge, but not formally. So they said, well, how are we going to do this? And so they, 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 he decided he's going to write an article because that would give him a, a reason to knock on doors. And so he, he designed a little survey about, uh, to ask people questions uh, and so he started knocking on doors, door after door after door in Sherwood Park. And the survey was, uh, do you go to church? If not, why not? What would have to change about the local church to convince you to attend? And it was just a little survey uh, that, that opened up a conversation about church. And he was really doing the survey and, and writing the article. It wasn't a lie. But, but he knocked on the door, and, and, and he had various different responses. Some people, when they saw that the survey was about church things, just close the door immediately. Okay, move on to the next door. Some people filled out the survey but didn't, you know, it stayed on the doorstep there. And then once in a while, somebody started filling out the survey and as they answered different questions, they asked more questions. And then they invited them into the house to, to further discuss some of the things on the survey. And then some of those people who they got invited into the house invited them back to talk about it further. And so over, over a period of time, they had several different Bible studies in several different houses around Sherwood Park. One of the things they found out that every house they went into was playing country music, and people had moved out to Sherwood Park so that they could have an acreage and pretend to be cowboys, and so they were wearing cowboy boots. So the banker from Edmonton put on cowboy boots, jeans, a big buckle, and a cowboy hat, and learned to say, Hallelujah, yeehaw. And, uh, and he became a cowboy. Uh, not because he was, but because that's the people God had called them to. And so, uh, and so then af- after he had these number of different Bible studies, he started to suggest them, well, why don't we all get together in one place and, and, and study the Bible together? And uh, you just had um, last, last week, I believe it was, uh, Orban Bellamy is now the pastor, the second pastor of the church that, that, uh, that Kevin Corbin planted there in that, in that way. He just went door to door till he found a few people of peace. And when those people came to the Lord, they brought their families and their friends with them. And they started a church. It really wasn't complicated. Now, we've also given money to, as, as we should, and, and supported, and maybe we will again, uh, the church plant in Wembley. But this is very different. In Wem- Kevin Corbin, that church still doesn't have a building. Uh, but, but in Wembley, it went the other way around. God gave us an pa- experienced pastor and a building, but no congregation. A closed-down church with an empty building wanted to see it being used for the Lord's work rather than sell it for commercial purposes. And so uh, we've ended up paying some money for it, but, but a very good deal. And so, so uh, Dwight Mund was sitting in, in an empty church building, an experienced pastor with a good church building, but no people. So how do you start a church in that situation? And so, of course, as, as would, be, would be normal, he, he spent a lot of time in the church building praying. And he, he, there was a few people that would come to church, uh, but, but not anything that could be called a, a proper congregation. And, and he noticed that the, the children would cut across the churchyard and then across an empty, empty lot 
to go through a little hole in the fence to get to school. And so, uh, so he started going out there every morning and shoveling the, the trail that the kids used to, to make it better for them. And got to know some of the children that, that went by the church every day, twice a day, to and from school. And then on one particularly cold morning, he was shoveling the snow and there was a little girl walking alone. And he invited her into the church foyer to warm up and uh, gave her a cup of hot chocolate and then sent her on her way. And he, he kind of felt bad about that because, you know, in today's world that can be interpreted all kinds of different ways and it's not really appropriate. And so he found out who the mother of this little girl was and he, he went and knocked on her door and said, you know, this happened and I, she was just freezing and I, I invited her in to warm up and just to make sure. And she says, oh, thank you for doing that, you know, and that, that's great. And so, so that started to happen. Uh, different children would, would stop at the church for just a minute to warm up on the way when it was minus 20 and they're walking to school. And uh, most of them kind of came and went, but the, that one little girl started to stop by to say hi every day. And so they became friends. And then some weeks later, she showed up at church with her mother and her aunt and some other hangers-on from the family. And so then they started coming to church regularly. And I don't know all the ins and outs of that story, uh, and, uh, but I do know that there ended up being an AA meeting in the church and various other things. And so in that case, the person of peace was a little girl in grade two who God put in front of his path. And, uh, and she was the one that brought a bunch of people to church to meet Jesus. So you never know. You never know. How do we reach Wainwright? Jesus gives us very clear and simple instructions right there in Luke chapter 10. Cast a broad net. Go all over, wherever people are, go. Wherever you go, somehow find a way to bring the presence of Jesus into that situation, into that conversation. Don't push the issue if it's rejected. Just receive that blessing back and move along. God will put in your path someone who he has prepared, who opens a door to a community of people who he wants to bring into the church. But don't force them to come here. Receive their hospitality and go there. Receive what they put in front of you with gratitude and thanksgiving and bring the kingdom with you. When they're ready, they'll be hungry for fellowship and singing and all kinds of things, and they'll come here. You'll never have to tell them. They'll tell you. They'll tell you when it's time. Those people Jesus gave those instructions to were first-time novices. They'd never done it before. They felt like sheep going among wolves. So if that's what you feel like, you're in good company close with one more story. Do you remember Jesus walking through a town, crowds all around? And sometimes we've asked the question, why didn't he heal everybody? But I think it's because he did his mission exactly the way he told us to. 
He's looking in the crowds of people. Where is a person of peace who will receive my blessing? And in this case, he found a person up in a tree trying to get a look at him. He didn't say, come to my house. He said, I'm coming to your house. Now, Zacchaeus may have said, no, you're not. I think Jesus would have moved on. But Jesus said, okay, you're coming to my house. I'll offer you hospitality. And Jesus went into that house, and it was filled with sinners and all the things that sinners eat and drink and do. And he brought the kingdom there. And of all the people in that town, he could have stopped at. He could not have stopped at a person that ended up being more influential. Because when Zacchaeus went door to door, repaying the money he'd stolen, bringing the kingdom with him, every door opened. Anyone else would not have had that opportunity. Zacchaeus, the most unlikely person, was the key to reaching that town. And Jesus only had to reach one person to reach that town. If it was the right person that God had prepared and God knew. So we don't know who the key is, but we pray diligently. We bring the kingdom wherever we go, and we, we find the person who receives it as a blessing. We, re, we accept their hospitality, and we go there, and we build that friendship and build that relationship. And God does the other part. It's not up to us to save them. It's not up to us to convince them. It's not up to us to convince everybody. God knows which people in this community are the key people that will open up doors and bring floods of people. We don't know that. We never will. We have his instructions, and they're not that hard to follow on how to reach our town, our province, and our world.